Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to consider in connection with this fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Psalm 146. Psalm 146 belongs to a group of five psalms at the very end of the Psalter. And all of these psalms are characterized by a beginning, the phrase beginning, and ending each, praise the Lord, or hallelujah. These, therefore, are all psalms of praise, and they are, together, they constitute a very fitting end to the book of Psalms. The psalms are full of all kinds of other things, uh, complaints and uh, imprecations on enemies, and instruction, and history, and uh, prophecy, all kinds of things that are part of the scriptures as well, in general as well, but their main purpose is the purpose of praise. And that praise comes to its climax here in Psalms 146 to 150. Now I've chosen 146 as the uh, uh, focus of our attention for this afternoon, not because it contains a petition that the Lord supply for us our daily bread, but rather because it shows us the basis for that petition, especially in the last part of the psalm where we read that he is the Lord our God who opens, who executes judgment for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, freedom to the prisoners, who opens the eyes of the blind, raises those who are bowed down, and so on. What we see here then is the psalm instructing us in the reason why we ask God to give us our daily bread. It is because he is the one who supplies all our earthly needs. We look at the psalm under the theme, trusting in the Lord who cares for the righteous. Trusting in the Lord who cares for the righteous. And we look at three parts in this psalm. First of all, in verses 1 to 2, the psalmist exhorts himself to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Secondly, he exhorts us not to trust in princes. Verses 3 and 4. And finally, he tells us about the happiness of those who have the God of Jacob for their help verses 5 to 10. So we look first at verses 1 and 2. We do not have identified for us in the heading of this psalm an author. He is an unidentified speaker, therefore. But we find the author of this psalm beginning after the initial hallelujah or exhortation to praise the Lord, beginning by exhorting himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul. This is not the kind of language that we are accustomed to use ourselves, though perhaps it should be more a part of our lives. But it's language very commonly found in the Psalter. So, for example, in Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul and forget not all his benefits. And again in Psalm 104, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. 
The psalmist is exhorting his own soul. He is stirring himself up to the praise of the Lord. And this psalm, that makes of this psalm, from the very beginning, a psalm of praise. Notice how he repeats that word, praise, three times in those first four lines of the psalm. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul, while I live, I will praise the Lord. The word sing praises in the second line of verse 2 is a different Hebrew word, which we could perhaps translate as hymn. I will hymn to my God while I have my being. It's a psalm of praise then, and the psalm is focused on the Lord. The psalmist is not here focused on himself, though he exhorts himself, but he is focused on the Lord. His attention is turned outward, outward to the Lord. And the psalm is not a prayer which makes petition for himself. He instead intends throughout this psalm to give praise to the Lord. And this praise, he says, will be perpetual. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. That is, his whole being and his whole life will be consumed by this idea of praise. This will be the dominant theme of his life. This will be the theme that governs every other aspect of his life. He will praise the Lord. He will praise the Lord now. He will praise the Lord in the future. He will even praise the Lord in the age to come. For his being, he will still have his being in that age as well. He hints a little bit. He does not talk directly here, but he hints a little bit at the reasons for this praise by the names that he gives to the Lord here in these first two verses. He calls him first Lord, that is Yahweh. He is the I am that I am, the eternal one, the absolutely self-sufficient one, and the unchangeable one. And he calls him also my God, the one who has made covenant with him and who has drawn him to himself, who has given him a place in his house, who has promised him as an inheritance and who has cared for him with a fatherly and loving care all the days of his life. The Lord is great and the Lord has cared for him. Therefore, he will praise the Lord. I think that's all we need to say at this point about verses 1 and 2. So let's go on then to verses 3 and 4. Here, the psalmist turns his attention from himself. He no longer is exhorting himself here, but he is exhorting us. Do not put your trust in princes. That your there is plural, so he's not addressing himself anymore. He's addressing the people of God. Do not put your trust in princes, nor any son of man in whom there is no help. And we should understand it this way as we use this psalm in our worship of God that we first, in this psalm, exhort ourselves to the praise of the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And then turn to our fellow believers who are gathered in worship with us and say to them, do not put your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. The psalmist here then singles out from among all possible men in whom we may put our trust, princes, 
And he singles them out because they are the ones who are the most powerful. They are the ones who are most wealthy. They are the ones to whom most readily we would turn to ask for help. They are the ones most likely among all men to be able to provide us with help. And he says to us, don't put your trust in them. Now that does not mean, people of God, that he is exhorting us to be universally suspicious, to be suspicious of all men at all times and in all things. There are men who are, in, uh, up to a certain point, trustworthy, and we trust them, and we expect good from them in a certain measure. He's not saying to us, then, you may never trust anyone to any degree whatsoever. Doubt every person. Don't do, uh, have anything to do with relying on anyone else for anything at all. That's not what he's saying. In fact, of course, God provides his help to us through men sometimes. And we look to these men for that help. People go to their pastors for help in their troubles. People go to their families, for example, or to the deacons for financial help. These are means that God has provided for our help. And God's not saying, the psalmist is not saying, abandon all those means that God has provided. But what he's saying to us is, first of all, understand that it is God who has provided those means, those people, for your help. Ultimately, your help comes from God. He may give it through men, but ultimately it comes to you from the hand of God himself. But he's also saying, of course, do not put your final trust in them. They are trustworthy up to a point, but do not put your final trust in them. Do not put your final trust even in godly princes and in godly great men. Do not do that. Trust rather, that's the positive side of this, trust in the Lord. And so if you need help, if you need help with anything, you trust first in the Lord. And then you seek to use those means that the Lord has provided for that help. Sometimes those means are men, other men. But you are not then trusting in men. You are trusting in the Lord and the means that he has appointed Why then should we not trust in princes? First of all, he indicates that by speaking of a son of man in verse 3. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man. There are a couple of things that we want to say about that. First of all, that phrase, son of man, applies to the prince in the first line of the verse. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man. The prince is also a son of man. But it applies generally to all men. That phrase, son of man, can be 
expressed very well, I think, in the simple word human. Nor in a human. A descendant of Adam is what that phrase means. Don't trust in the descendants of Adam. Why not? Well, exactly because they are descendants of Adam. They are creatures. They are not gods. They do not have the power and authority and wealth and uh, eternity of the God to whom you should go. They are sons of man. In the second place, he points us to the fact that in these sons of men, or sons of man, there is no help. And the word in Hebrew there is actually salvation. Nor in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Now that word salvation is to be taken broadly. We've seen before that that word salvation applies not only to salvation from sin and death, but to salvation from enemies, salvation from sickness, salvation from financial straits, salvation from any of the troubles that come upon us here in this life. God saves his people and he saves them fully and completely. He saves them not only from sin and death, but from all the consequences of the curse from all those troubles that are part of our lives here as fallen creatures who have come under the judgment of God. His salvation is with us. That salvation is not found in men. In man there is no salvation. There is salvation only in God. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Psalm 3 says. It's not in man, and therefore we must not look to man. But then also in verse 4, the psalmist instructs us in the limitations of this son of man and these princes. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. So he refers to his death, to his burial, and to the fact that in his death and burial, all his plans and his thoughts perish. Why should you not trust in man then? Because of the fact that he is a man doomed to die. He will go to the grave and return to his earth. And when he goes to the grave, his thoughts and his plans will perish. His spirit departs. Will you then, as one who is dying under the curse of God and in all the troubles of life, seek your help from one who is also dying and suffering from all the troubles of life, even if he is a prince, even if he is a godly man? Will you seek your help and salvation from one who is returning to his earth? That is, who is returning to the dust from which he was made and becoming dust again, just as you are dust returning to dust? Will any prince be able ultimately to give you the help that you need, to give you the salvation that you seek? And will you, Seek your help from one 
who, however good his intentions and however well disposed his thoughts towards you, will see his thoughts and his plans perish as he dies and passes from this life. He may intend good, he may promise good, he may do good as long as his days last. But the time comes when his plans and his thoughts perish and can do no longer any good for you. There is no salvation. So man and princes are limited by their changeability. What the prince thinks about you today may change tomorrow. The good intention that the prince has towards you today may tomorrow be an evil intention, for he too is a sinner. What he has promised you may fail because he lacks the ability to perform it. There is no salvation in man. You must trust in the Lord. Let's refer just to a couple of passages that express this idea. First of all, Psalm 81, verses 8 and following. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you will listen to me. There shall be no foreign god among you, nor shall you worship any foreign god. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart, to walk in their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. But also Jeremiah 17, beginning with verse 5. Jeremiah 17, verse 5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Then if you skip over the next verse for the moment and go to verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. But notice then also what he says following each of those statements. After saying, cursed is the man who trusts in man, he says, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. And following verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Notice the language derived from Psalm 1 in that verse. Cursed is he who trusts in man, blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Therefore, put your trust in the Lord. Also, for earthly things. Also, for your daily bread and all all your earthly needs. (coughs) 
Let's go on then to verses 5 to 10 of the psalm. The main idea of which is, of course, in the first line, happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. That hope is equivalent, basically, to trust. We may make it some distinction between trust and hope. Trust, we may say, is trust in the Lord during present circumstances. Trust that he has not forsaken us. Trust that he is dealing with us still according to his mercy. And with regard to the future, trust that he will continue to deal with us according to his mercy in time to come. Hope has to do not with the present so much as with the future. We are focused on what God has promised and what we expect from him in the future, all the good things that we hope and are assured that he will give us. Those who hope in the Lord, and this is an important part of the psalm which we'll be coming back to, those who hope in the Lord are the ones who receive help from him. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, And we could say, because his hope is in the Lord, his God. Those who receive this help, then, from the Lord, are those who hope in him. And they are the ones who are happy, or they, I would prefer, actually, they are the ones who are blessed. Blessing implies that God is with us, that God is doing good for us, that even if we are not happy, still God is being good, and still God is caring for us. As Psalm 144, verse 15 says, Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Now notice, too, here, the names that he gives to God the God of Jacob, and the Lord his God. The God of Jacob means the God of Israel, of course. Jacob is a name for the nation of Israel, not just for that ancestor of the nation, but for the nation as a whole. And that name Jacob designates that people of Israel, those descendants of Jacob, as the chosen people of the Lord. Out of all the people who existed on the earth at the time of Abraham, God chose Abraham, and to him spoke his covenant promises. From Abraham's sons, God chose Isaac, but not Ishmael or the sons of Keturah. From the sons of Isaac, he chose Jacob and not Esau. And then he, in Jacob, raised up a mighty nation, the sons of Jacob, whom he calls Israel and Jacob, his people, his chosen people. It is then to the electing grace of God, the electing love of God, that we are referred to in this name, God of Jacob. And we belong to that people, that people of God who are called Jacob and Israel. 
As Paul says in Romans 4, those are the children of Abraham whose faith is the faith of Abraham. And so this applies to us as well as to all believing Israelites in the Old Testament. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help. And by the way, the word help there is in Hebrew also the word help, not salvation. And this God of Jacob then is not only the God who chose Israel from eternity, but is also the God who set his love upon that people and did many mighty works and wonderful things for them throughout their history. This is our history. These are the wonderful works God has done for us. Happy is he who has that God, who has chosen Jacob and who has been good to Jacob for many hundreds of years, who has that God for his help. And secondly, he speaks of the Lord his God. Now notice the contrast with verse uh, 2, where he says, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. He is my God, he says in verse 2, as he exhorts his own soul to praise the Lord. But now he speaks of this God who is his God being the God of others as well. Happy is he who has the Lord his God as his hope. Put your hope in that God then, he says. Be blessed in that God. Don't seek your blessing, your hope, your good from man, from princes, but from the God of Jacob who has become your God. It's a very necessary exhortation because we are always inclined, are we not, to put our trust in those people we can see, in those things that we can grasp with our hands, in those things that seem to us usually to be more real, if I may put it that way, than God. Which is exactly contrary to the truth. Now again, here, the psalmist gives us reasons for this trust and hope. In verses 6 to 10, there are a number of things that we need to say about those verses in general. First of all, notice that verses 6 and 7 are a simple continuation of the sentence begun in verse 5. Happy is he whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth, and so on. And they continues into verse 7. The whole sentence then is three, almost three verses long. In the second place, notice that the things of which he speaks here are in the mind of the psalmist and in the mind of the people of God in the Old Testament, things that their king provides. These are royal gifts that he is talking about here. So, for example, in Psalm 72, which is a celebration of the messianic reign, if you look first at verse 4, he, that is the king whom God anoints, will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy 
and will bring, break in pieces the oppressor. Or in verse 16 of that psalm, there will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. Or again, you may turn to Psalm 144, which celebrates the Lord's reign over his people and ends with the words, happy are the people who are in such a state, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Why? Because he will fill their barns. He will give them sons as plants grown up in their youth. He will give them daughters as pillars, sculptured in palace style. He will give them sheep in their tens of thousands, well-laden oxen, no breaking in or going out in their gates, and no outcry in their streets. This is the nature of this king. He provides for his people. You can see this throughout the Psalms. The king is the one from whom these gifts come. And David is, or the psalmist is here then exhorting us to put our trust in the king. And therefore says later in the Psalm, verse 10, The Lord shall reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. This is the God who not only reigns then, who is not only king, and king of all nations and king of all things that belong to this world, but he is the God whose reign does not come to an end, whose spirit does not depart, who does not return to his earth, and whose thoughts and plans do not perish. He reigns forever. Put your trust then in that God rather than in a son of man. And of course, in speaking of the king, then, the psalmist refers also to our Lord Jesus Christ. When he uses that name, Yahweh, the Lord, many times in this psalm, in fact, in five successive lines in verses 7, 8, and 9, the Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. The Lord does this through that king whom he has set at his own right hand. And then finally, in general, we may say that this psalm focuses on earthly kinds of things. Now, as you look at those earthly kinds of things, you can see, first of all, I think, that some of those, and perhaps all of them, can be taken in a metaphorical way for spiritual things. But they are, in the first place, earthly things. But in the second place, I think we ought to understand as we look at these earthly things versus spiritual things in these verses, we need to know that you can't just make a a sharp separation between the earthly and the spiritual in our daily experience. Because, for example, as you suffer hunger, that hunger may become a temptation which draws you away from the Lord and causes you to seek the things which belong to this world rather than the treasures of heaven. Or when you are suffering oppression, as he talks about in verse 7, that oppression may become a temptation to you to abandon your trust in the Lord and to say to yourself, the Lord does not help. The Lord does not come to me in my need. 
I will not trust him anymore. And so associated with these earthly things are spiritual things as well. Temptations come to us through these earthly things. Spiritual temptations, that is. And in fact, these things were then also tied very closely together in the Old Testament, especially as God blessed his people abundantly in the land flowing with milk and honey. He was giving them a picture of the spiritual things, the treasures of the kingdom of heaven, and all the blessings in heavenly places that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we talk our way through these different things that he mentions here, and especially in verses 7, 8, and 9, Let's understand that and keep that in mind, that we're going to be talking about earthly things, but they also have metaphorical objects, metaphorical correlations in the spiritual things. In this list, the psalmist gives us reasons to trust in the Lord and to hope in him and tells us what to trust him for. So he gives us both the why of our trusting in him and the uh, things for which we should trust him, the what of our trusting in him. And that why then will break down into three parts. First of all, he is the creator. Happy is he whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth the sea, and all that is in them. He refers us to the fact that God is the creator of heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Why does he do that? Why is that important? Well, you find this frequently in the Psalms. The Psalms often do this sort of thing. Let's look at a few examples of it. Psalm 115, verse 15, first of all. May you be blessed by the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121, verse 2. 121, verse 2. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Psalm 134, verse 3. The Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. And you could find other examples of this as well. This, in this context of the people of God seeking their help from the Lord and depending on him for the help, they love to refer to him as the creator of heaven and earth. Why? Because it shows his power. It shows to them his ability to help. He who has created heaven and earth, who has brought all these things into being by the speaking of his word, he is one, surely then, who can help those who ask him for that help, who put their trust in him. So that's the first reason why we trust in him, because he is mighty, he is able to give us the help we need. In the second place, he says about this God who keeps truth forever. He is the God who is faithful, who does not change. 
who does not break his promises, who has sworn an oath and will keep his oath, even when we are fickle and changeable and sinful. There's a wonderful example of this faithfulness of the Lord in 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 22 and 23. 2 Kings 13, verses 22 and 23. And Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Remember, he's talking here about Israel, the northern kingdom. That kingdom that had from the very beginning of its separate existence abandoned him. That under Jeroboam had set up the golden calves and appointed their own priests and appointed their own feast days and was worshiping the Lord according to their own imaginations, not according to his law. That had abandoned his temple and had abandoned his anointed, the son of David. That's the people he's talking about. It's the people who had chosen to worship Baal and who had gone beyond worshiping Baal to worship the other gods of the nations, even to the point of offering their children in sacrifice to the idols of those nations. That's the people of whom it is said here, the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant. I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. That's another reason for trusting him. He keeps truth forever. And in the third place, then, we should trust him because he is the one who does all those things then for us that are listed in verses 7, 8, and 9. He supplies our needs. That's really what he's saying in those verses. He supplies our needs. And especially he supplies those things that we need when we are in trouble. But then when you look at those things too in verses 7, 8, and 9, you see not only that those are things Uh, that those are reasons why we should trust him, that he is the one who does these things for the oppressed and the hungry and for prisoners, but that these are the things for which we should trust him. So we trust him because he does these things for people, and we trust him for these things for ourselves for justice in oppression, for food in hunger, for freedom from bondage, and so on. So let's talk about those different things then that he lists there. First of all, he talks about justice for the oppressed. Now if you look up that word oppressed or oppression in the Old Testament scriptures, you will find that it refers to different, all kinds of different oppressions, all kinds of different problems. For example, you you find that it talks about this word is used in connection with your neighbor defrauding you or robbing you. 
That's one kind of oppression. Your neighbor, for example, cheating you in some kind of transaction between you or taking your goods away from you or your neighbor withholding your wages from you when you are owed those wages. It's uh, a word that's used of the uh, activities of an enemy who comes into your land against you and who uh, may destroy your property, who may take your livestock, who may kill your friends and your uh, family, who may take you away into captivity. This is another kind of oppression. It's used of a ruler who abuses his power to oppress his people. So you get all these different kinds of oppression, and all of them are in view here, and all of them, the psalm tells us, the Lord is the one who executes justice for the oppressed. He will do what is necessary to set things right for you when you have been oppressed. Now, he may not do that in this life. We have to recognize that also. But when you look back on this life in glory and all the various forms of oppression and injustice that you have suffered during this life, you will be able to say without hesitation and without qualification, the Lord has made every one of those oppressions, every one of those injustices right again. He has executed justice for the oppressed. Secondly, we find that he feeds the hungry. This one is especially relevant, of course, to the fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. Why do we ask him, give us this day our daily bread? Because he is the one who feeds the hungry. He is the one from whom our food comes, not from men, nor from our own efforts, but from him. Again, some passages of Scripture. First of all, 1 Samuel 2, verse 5. This is the song of Hannah again. That song which celebrates the Lord's goodness, the Lord's exaltation of the poor and humbling of the mighty. But in uh, verse 5 of that song, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread and the hungry have ceased to hunger. The Lord gives food to the hungry. Or Psalm 37, verses 19 and 25. This is David celebrating the goodness of the Lord to himself and exhorting us not to fret because of evildoers. Psalm 37, first verse uh, 19. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, And in the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. And then a little later in the psalm, verse 25, I have been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. Psalm 107 is another psalm that talks about this. Psalm 107, verses uh, 5 to 9, first of all. 5 to 9. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them, and they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. 
And he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. And also verse 36 of that psalm. There he makes the hungry dwell, that they may establish a city for a dwelling place, and sow fields and plant vineyards, that they may yield a fruitful harvest. The Lord takes care of the hungry. In the third place, we read here that he frees prisoners, or he frees those who are bound. Think of Joseph, hurried out of the prison into which Potiphar had unjustly cast him to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. Think of Samson, bound by his own brethren, the men of Judah, and handed over to the Philistines to be put to death. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he breaks his bonds and kills 1,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey. Or think of Manasseh, the king of Judah, who for the greatness of his sin was taken captive But when he prayed, was released from his captivity and restored to his kingship. That's in 2 Chronicles 33, verses 12 and 13. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of Isaiah 61, those well-known verses in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The Lord frees the prisoners. He opens the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. Or Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. He's talking to his servant. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. And think for a moment, if you will, of all the miracles of opening the eyes of the blind that our Lord Jesus Christ performed during his earthly ministry of the man in John 9 who was born blind, of blind Bartimaeus, of the man on whose eyes he put clay and then asked him, what do you see? And he said, I see men like trees walking. And who then he then did more for him to open his eyes completely. Many, many times throughout his ministry, the Lord opened the eyes of the blind. He raises up those who are bowed down. We talked about this last week or a couple weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 145. You have the same phrase there in verse 15. The eyes of all look expect, excuse me, 
Psalm 145, verse 14, the Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. This may be bowed down with the weight of trouble, bowed down with grief, even bowed down with physical infirmity as that woman was whom Jesus made straight and upright again. And finally, he cares for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Israel was a stranger in the land of Egypt. The Lord reminds Israel again and again of this fact in the law. Abraham was a stranger in the land in which he was a sojourner. Moses was a stranger in the land of Midian, and even named his son Gershom stranger, because he was a stranger in a strange land. And all, for all of them, the Lord cared and made them, gave them homes in which to dwell. The Lord has a special care for strangers even in his law. In the fourth commandment, he provides rest for them. The stranger who is within your gates, you must give, he says, rest to the stranger who is within your gates. And over and over again in the law, he talks about how Israel is to deal with strangers. Let's focus just on a few passages in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10, verses 18 and 19 first. 10, verses 18 and 19. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, he says, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And notice, too, how fatherless and widow are included here. The Lord loves the stranger. Therefore, he says, you must love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Or, if you want, turn to uh, Deuteronomy 24, and a number of verses in that chapter. Deuteronomy 24, first of all, verse 14, there. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Then verse 17 you shall not pervert justice due the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. And again in verses 19 to 22. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Deuteronomy 26, verses 12 and 13. When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled. Then you shall say to the Lord your God. And finally, Deuteronomy 27, verse 19. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. He is the one who cares for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. He watches over the strangers, relieves the fatherless, 
and the widow. And he told his people also to care for these. So we see, people of God, that in all these earthly things, which can at the same time be symbols of heavenly things, God cares for his people, provides for them. This is why we trust him. This is why, people of God, we ask him, give us this day our daily bread. He is the one who does these things for us. This is why we depend on him for all our earthly needs. He is the one who cares for us, also in earthly things, not just in spiritual things. But notice, too, one more point about this psalm, this part of the psalm. At the end of verse 8, the Lord loves the righteous. He does these things for the righteous. He does these things for those whose hope is in the Lord, their God. He does these things for those who do not put their trust in princes nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. Cursed is the one who trusts in men. And of the wicked, he says at the end of verse 9, the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. That is, he makes their plans go awry. He makes their paths dark and slippery. He makes all their ways crooked, not straight ways that lead to glory, but ways of darkness, ways of death and destruction. He is the Lord who reigns forever. He is our God, Zion, who reigns to all generations. Trust him. Look to him for your good. Ask of him your earthly needs. Pray, give us today our daily bread. And while you do it, subordinate it all to the praise of his name. This is, after all, a psalm of praise. Beginning, hallelujah, that's a command, praise the Lord. And ending, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Don't seek it for yourself. Seek it in order that you may praise him. Don't pray in isolation. Give us this day our daily bread and forget to say, hallowed be your name. Don't pray. Give us this day our daily bread and forget to add, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. May God bless the proclamation of his word.